Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. A shockwave was sent across Toronto this week because, look, the pandemic is getting everybody down. There are a lot of businesses that perhaps will not survive being closed for this long. And for a brief, horrible moment, it looked like one of the businesses in Toronto that might be a casualty was Garfield Eats the Garfield-themed pizza restaurant in the Toronto neighborhood of Bloordale. Which real heads will know about because I think we talked about it, um, I don't know how many episodes ago. But it's a Toronto locale that Will has had a very complex series of thoughts about and, and a lot of inner turmoil. I should say that I have never stepped foot in the Garfield restaurant. It is a legally, officially licensed Garfield-themed pizza restaurant. Wait, I, wait, wait, it's officially licensed? Like, are you telling me there's some kind of, like, special board, you know, or, or like, institutional body that, that determines what is, you know, sanctioned Garfield? Like, what, it, what constitutes a sanctioned Garfield-themed establishment? I'm just saying that none of Jim Davis's enemies are still among the living, so you have to be careful. <laughs> I've never stepped foot in it, but I do know that they sell pizzas that are shaped like Garfield's head, which I imagine is very hard to do. When it opened, I was very negative towards this restaurant. <laughs> I thought that this is an example of how a city gets hollowed out. It gets gentrified. Corporate logos and mascots, including fucking garfield the cat the fat cat who hates monday it is displacing probably some you know wonderful hundred year old coffee shop and given that we live in toronto you know a- anything like that every every gentrified place uh is always in some you know x manufacturing place with a really storied history you know the grit and authenticity of which is always then redeployed the exposed brick and all the rest of it into whatever you know god-awful startup or (laughs) in this case garfield themed establishment takes over so i had negative feelings towards it although i warmed up to the place a little bit when i found out that its owner was an eccentric man who has a bizarre social media presence and apparently very strongly believes in the mission of the garfield restaurant And then this week, I learned that the landlord had locked the doors or changed the locks on the place. It was looking like the Garfield restaurant would be displaced. And at that moment, I had a very complicated feeling because it felt like an example of a Toronto landmark being steamrolled by (laughs) greedy, uncaring landlords. You know what I mean? It's like... (laughs) Over the past few months, the Garfield restaurant has become, for me, sort of like Reg Hart's Cineforum. You know, just one <laughs> of those unusual Toronto landmarks that make a city what it is. So when you found out that uh, the Garfield restaurant might be closing, all of a sudden the Goliath became a, a proverbial David. It reminds me of that line that John Houston says in Chinatown. He says, of course, I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians and ugly buildings all get respectable if they last long enough. <laughs> and perhaps I feel this way about the Garfield restaurant several months into its existence. Uh, but there is a happy ending to this story, folks. Uh, the Garfield restaurant is back open. I don't know if it was a misunderstanding between the owner and the landlord or if the uh, tidal wave of social media love <laughs> convinced the landlord to change his position. 
So uh, you say they're back open. I mean, are they allowed to be under the quarantine, under the lockdown? Are they are they doing like Garfield themed deliveries? Like, can you go and pick up a Garfield shaped pizza? Yeah, you can go in. There's an app that you can do. But I mean, if it was a true Garfield themed restaurant, it would not actually leave the restaurant. It would sit there lazing in the sun like the tubby tabby himself. Luke, you were telling me that last night you participated in a debate online that would determine once and for all whether capitalism or socialism was the correct route. I I know that this is a question that is on all of our minds these days. All of us are struggling with these two polls. Was the answer finally determined last night? Tell me what this debate was. So I was invited by uh, an organization called the Bespoken Bureau Uh, to participate in a series of they're doing these digital debates during quarantine. So I think they had one earlier this week on no platforming. And uh, this one, much bigger topic, socialism or capitalism. And the resolution was socialism, the new and better way forward or something like that. And I was defending the resolution. supposed to be an hour. I think it ran about 75 minutes, which is not enough time to debate this stuff. But, you know, I did uh, did the best I could. There were 10 minute opening statements and then there were kind of five minute closing statements, which meant that roughly a third of the time was just kind of taken up with us talking, with us doing these kind of, I guess, almost almost monologues. I enjoyed it. I thought it went okay. It was pretty collegial. I mean, I I find these debates, you know, many I've watched many a debate along these lines before. I think this is the first time I'd ever participated in one. They always do kind of break down along pretty predictable lines. I mean, my interlocutor, who is a polite fellow from something called the Institute of Liberal Studies, which is a kind of libertarian or classical liberal you know think tank charity you know he he basically just wanted to talk about the ussr you know sure Um, how about venezuela did that come up it may have come up i mean the libertarian position i think is often just that socialism is when the government does stuff and freedom is when there's the absence of the government doing stuff unless that stuff is guaranteeing the rights of you know moneyed property owners which is which is which is freedom So yeah, I mean, that was kind of one, I guess, predictable facet of the debate. I mean, the other one, I mean, for me, the real crux of the ideological difference comes down to, I think that it's very confusing to spend all your time talking about the threat, the possible threats posed by the state overreaching, which I don't think there are really any socialists worthy of the name who aren't critical of the potential for the state to overreach. I mean, the socialist position is not just that the the government should be bigger and do more stuff, particularly when that stuff is, uh, you know, is intrusive. The state is an endlessly multifaceted entity. It can be democratic, it can be not democratic. It has a multitude of functions, some of which socialists, broadly speaking, approve of and others which uh, which we don't. But even even if you do think the state is completely, uh, you know, intrusive uh, and that it interferes with people's freedom, what I don't get and what I think is kind of absurd about the libertarian or the classical liberal position is why why stop the critique there? Why stop the critique at the state? People have their freedom crushed and compromised in the, you know, private sphere outside of the reaches of the state all the time. Where do people spend the majority of their waking lives? For most people, it's in the workplace. It's really no good. I mean, particularly when you're looking at somebody like an Amazon worker, for example, someone who works in an Amazon warehouse and they're being constantly surveilled and monitored and they need permission to go, you know, can I go to the washroom, you know, and the conditions outside of 
uh, when they're when they're not even at work are kind of set by their employer as well because their employer determines their wage. So I just don't get not thinking that people's freedom can be impeded and compromised uh, there as well. The libertarian response to that is usually, uh, well, if you don't like your job, you can get another one. But for so many people, that's really not the case. Or if, even if it is the case, sure, you can get another job. You can you know, stop working at Amazon. You can work at McDonald's instead. If you don't like <laughs> yeah. your job there, you can go and work at 7-Eleven, whatever. You know, even if you're a fairly well-educated person who has the credentials that officially make you middle class in a precarious economy like ours, I mean, your actual kind of economic agency, I think, is pretty limited, meaning that whatever kind of formal freedoms you have, you know, because of the constitution of your country or because of the existence of representative democracy or whatever, I think is pretty limited. So that was kind of point of contention number two. And then I think my favorite sort of thing that comes up in these debates over and over again, it actually happened in the debate I witnessed a few months ago between David Brooks and Yanis Varoufakis, which I can't remember if we talked about that on the show. Scandinavia always comes up in these debates inevitably because weirdly enough, David Brooks, when I saw the debate, Varoufakis was very keen to say Scandinavian countries, no, they're fine. They're they're capitalist countries, which is hilarious because, you know, it's news to me that David Brooks approves of like worker ownership funds and high wages and Denmark taxes. Uh, I can't remember what colossal percentage of, of GDP is just tax in Denmark. In Norway, if you subtract the value of housing, 76% of the of the wealth in the country is publicly owned. It's news to me that, you know, libertarians, conservatives, whatever, think that's fine. But uh, great, I guess the debate is already uh, won. We can all move on. But I mean, of course, my response to that is, of course, Denmark, Norway, whatever, are capitalist countries in the sense that they retain the capitalist, you know, mode of production, if you will. But everything that makes them free and livable, you know, has to do with the market being contained and restricted. Everything that we associate with Scandinavia, particularly the welfare state, comes from people, particularly trade unions, organizing to rein in the power of the wealthy and, uh, you know, large corporations and the marketplace in general, people organizing to decommodify whole sectors of, of life so that people have more time and space to just live their lives and not have to constantly be in the grind of work so that people have paid vacations and parental leave and, and things like that. Um, everything that makes those societies uh, so successful and so comparatively prosperous and free compared to a society like the United States or even Canada comes from these decidedly non-capitalist things. So that came up as well. Uh, it was uh, it was fun. People can go watch it. It's on YouTube. Um, I'll, I'll probably post the link in uh, Patreon. But if you're not in the Patreon, you just search, you know, Luke Savage debate or something like that. It, it should be easy enough to find. <laughs> In 1969, Gordon Parks became the first African-American to direct a movie for a Hollywood studio. Parks deserves his status as a pioneer, but the history of cinema extends far beyond the boundaries of Los Angeles. In the first half of the 20th century, there existed a flourishing industry of what are commonly called race movies. Movies for, about, and often made by black Americans, which were distributed in black screening venues across the country. Production of these movies was spurred by the indignity of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation in 1915, and early race movies sought to highlight the heroic achievements of black people throughout history, 
but soon the race movies became a sort of parallel Hollywood. Comedies, dramas, musicals, and westerns in the Hollywood style with all-black casts. As many as 500 race movies were produced between 1909 and 1950, only a fraction of which still survive, and the greatest practitioner of the form was Oscar Michaud. Michaud was born in Illinois in 1884, the son of former Kentucky slaves who migrated north after the Civil War. In his early years, he did odd jobs and manual labor until he saved enough money to buy land in South Dakota. He became the state's only black homesteader and gradually won the respect of his white peers. He wrote about his successes in a series of autobiographical novels, which he sold door to door. In 1919, he secured enough private financing to turn one of these books, The Homesteader, into a movie, the first feature-length movie directed by an African-American. He also distributed the film himself, traveling across the country and developing a reputation as a sort of P.T. Barnum of race movies. The Homesteader was a major success, and Michaud would direct over 40 films before his death in 1951, making him still the most prolific African-American filmmaker of all time. He was a complicated figure. More than any other race filmmaker, he dealt directly with hot-button issues. Gambling, substance abuse, sexual assault, corrupt preachers, the Ku Klux Klan, interracial romance, and black people passing as white. These issues had him fighting constantly with censor boards across the country. He modeled his life on that of his hero, the legendary black educator Booker T. Washington, and he inherited Washington's faults and virtues. Like Washington, Michaud sought to be proudly middle class, wanted to uplift the race, and preached a philosophy of black self-reliance. His films, particularly some of his later ones, are often painfully critical of his race. So many of Michaud's movies have been lost, I think 15 in total survive, none in their complete versions. It's impossible to really evoke a complete picture of his philosophy. Nevertheless, the movie we watched this week, Within Our Gates from 1920, is the only Michaud film extant to contain a lot of ignorant and evil white characters. Michaud's own life, heroic in so many ways, shows that an African-American man could have only ascended so high by his bootstraps alone. No matter how prolific and successful he became, there was no way he would ever be employed at a Hollywood studio. He lasted about a decade as an independent filmmaker and distributor before bankruptcy forced him to scale back his ambitions. His sound films were mostly made for Alfred N. Sack, a white entrepreneur who owned a string of black theaters in the South and provided reliable financing for black filmmakers. Only one of Michaud's films was ever reviewed by the New York Times, and it was his last from 1948. It was reviewed negatively. Nevertheless, the existence of Within Our Gates almost exactly 100 years later is a testament to what Michaud was able to achieve. Luke, I don't think you'd seen this before. I want to hear your first impressions of it, but you also mentioned to me that you recently watched uh, Gone with the Wind, which I would be interested to hear your thoughts about in relation to this movie. Yeah, I mean, first I'll say I I hadn't heard of this film until you suggested it, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And just on a technical level, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it was as technically adept as films I've seen, uh, other films I've seen from the silent era that are much more famous, films by people like Sergei Eisenstein or, of course, D.W. Griffith, who you mentioned. I love the use of flashbacks and kind of flashbacks within flashbacks. I found the score, which, of course, was not the original score, could at times be a little bit distracting, but I guess that's always kind of an issue in, in silent films. I found the last 20 or 30 minutes of the film really, really powerful with kind of counterposing different things that were going on. 
different things that were going on in the same sequence, which is pretty powerful and would have been, I think, quite technically difficult to achieve so seamlessly at the time. But yes, I did watch Gone with the Wind recently, and I'd never seen it either. And, you know, I obviously kind of knew what this film was. I think you watched it for an episode of The Important Cinema Club a while back. Mm -hmm. But I was just not prepared for kind of how unbelievably reactionary uh, (laughs) everything about the film is and kind of its core story. I was expecting something that was a sort of, you know, well, yes, the South was kind of you know problematic but you know I, I i mean the fact that a film like that could not only be made by a major studio with those production values in 1939 but that it could so proudly and boastfully have the kind of message about the south that it did is, is an astonishing and an extremely ominous and disturbing comment on race discourse and the progress of race discourse in in american culture um for people who haven't seen gone with the wind um, you know, you might have the same kind of impression that I did about it. And I guess I should say, I mean, it is it is a, you know, an astonishing just cinematic achievement. I mean, it's and it, and it does have progressive elements, particularly in the portrayal of Scarlett O'Hara, who's the main character, who's a very, you know, I, I was reading Roger Ebert's review of it. Um, and he pointed out that she's a very kind of 1930s, almost Rosie the Riveter character. She's a very industrious and independently minded woman, which is not the type of character, female character that you would have typically seen on screen at the time. But in terms of the film's politics, as I said, you might have, if you haven't seen it, the same kind of impression I had that it's, you know, a sort of fall of the South film. But if you haven't seen it, you will not be prepared for what you find even just in the opening titles. And I just want to read what the opening title card in Gone with the Wind says. So it opens with some music and there's a kind of, um, you know, series of opening credits. And then the text on the screen reads, there was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair, of master and slave. Look for it only in books, for it is no more than a dream remembered, a civilization gone with the wind. (laughs) And lest you think that uh, that uh, extremely rose-tinted view of the Confederate States of America kind of wanes throughout the film... A few hours in, um, when the Civil War is kind of uh, at its height and it's clear that the South is losing and, you know, Sherman is marching on Atlanta, I think it's right after the intermission, you see some title cards that are describing General Sherman's march to the sea. And yet, you know, there's this ominous music in a minor register telling you about how the great invaders, you know, marching... Uh, marching on Atlanta, and this is very terrifying. The film never really abandons its depiction of the South, and it is uh, meant to be a kind of tragedy about how there was this this thing called the Old South that was just too beautiful to survive in this uh, crazy world. And I suppose the only element of the film that's kind of deviant from that is that the arc of the main character, Scarlett O'Hara, kind of has to do with her letting go of things that that she wanted, uh, dreams she had before the Civil War. Um, But again, that's kind of an element of tragedy. It's through the personality of a single character, and it's it's not really uh, possible to interpret politically, I don't think. So um, yeah, watching Gone with the Wind was an extremely interesting experience. I think it is still 
maybe the highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflations it absolutely is by a huge margin on wikipedia it says that the film grossed over 325 million dollars in 1939 dollars so imagine how much money that is i mean it's it's well over a billion dollars it's crazy um and i think that's kind of an imprecise figure as well um Film, the film probably made more than that. You know what's strange? Have you ever had the experience of going into a drugstore and looking at the magazine rack and seeing like a glossy Gone with the Wind magazine? It seems that there's one kind of perpetually there amidst all those like Life magazine, you know, The Beatles or Johnny Cash or... Can we, can we, can we digress to talk about those for a second? Please. That's an interesting little institution. <laughs> um it is funny how there's like this whole parallel media economy. Yeah, you see it at Shoppers Drug Mart or whatever, where it's just these magazines that seem to like be frozen in time, where for some reason there's just yet another cover about like Joshua Tree era U2 or <laughs> or like Princess Diana. Like there's just like five yeah. things that are Gone with the Wind, Princess Diana, Joshua Tree era, U2. John F. Kennedy. JFK. <laughs> and then also it's somehow always the anniversary of when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. Like every <laughs> single day. <laughs> who's reading this stuff? And also all of those all of those magazines, they're always they always announce themselves with great fanfare as limited edition, but also they're sort of 40 or $50. They're extremely highly priced and they almost seem packaged as if like, folks, you need to buy this because this is the canon. This is the cultural canon. Yeah. Uh, it, you need to have every glossy life magazine that has Scarlett O'Hara on the cover. You know who else you see there all the time? John Wayne. I've lost count of how many John Wayne magazines have been published over the years. <laughs> I kind of have a conspiracy theory about Life magazine, which is that it, it the business model is actually not what you think it is. Actually, nobody buys it on newsstands. That's all a cover. What really happens is it gets purchased in bulk by people who own really gaudy restaurants. If you actually open a Life magazine, the text is just gobbledygook. It's that it's that text that's auto-generated by your magazine editing software because the cover is all that matters. And restaurant proprietors of the kind, you know, particularly of the kind for whom uh, the word class is an adjective that means refinement rather than something else, they like to cut off the covers and frame them and just like adorn the walls of their restaurants with just pictures of like Bono and Princess Diana and, and stuff like that. Um, I think that's that's how Life Magazine stays afloat. Uh, by the way, I share your reservations about Gone with the Wind. I think it has four good scenes stretched liberally over a drum tight four hours. It is extremely, uh, extremely long. Anyways, our digression about Life Magazine uh, aside, it was pretty amazing to watch within our gates uh, so soon after watching Gone with the Wind because surprise, surprise, it's a it's a much more progressive film in terms of its politics. It was also made almost 20 years before Gone with the Wind, which is pretty incredible. The plot of Within Our Gates is pretty complicated. It's not the easiest to follow. The central character is Sylvia, a mixed-race Southern woman who is in the North trying to raise money for a black schoolhouse from, I guess, wealthy white patricians. From that central premise, the movie is sort of a kaleidoscopic 
almost a state of the union of black life and the problems facing black people in America circa 1920. There are a lot of characters. One of the more sympathetic white characters is Mrs. Warwick, a white philanthropist who wants to help Sylvia. Mrs. Warwick has a friend named Geraldine who's a very vicious racist and thinks it a moral and strategic error to try to educate black people. A theme that develops throughout the movie are these white elites who have have strategies, have structural strategies to keep black people in their place. One of those strategies is another character, Old Ned, a black preacher who takes bribes from the white establishment so that he'll never challenge the status quo in his sermons. This, by the way, was a motif that recurred throughout Oscar Micheaux's books and films quite brave at the time, I think, that he he was constantly using preachers and churches as this example of something that was standing in the way of black progress. There is a romantic plot of sorts, a domestic plot. Sylvia is in the north visiting her cousin Alma, and Alma has a stepbrother named Larry, who is symbolic of some of the vices that might befall an African-American at this time. He's a gambler who uh, is constantly losing money in poker games, who kills another gambler during one of the poker games. This leads him into a life of crime. He's shot robbing a bank. And then the last act of the film is a rather complicated flashback to Sylvia's childhood. We learn that Sylvia's father was falsely accused of murdering a powerful white landlord, a landlord who owned most of the black farms and property in the town. The rumor that her father killed this landlord was spread by Ephraim, who is the landlord's servant, and who is approximately the same archetype as Samuel L. Jackson played in Django Unchained, you know, the servant who's desperate to curry favor with the white people. Ephraim meets a tragic end when, in a very startling and upsetting scene, the lynch mob who are trying to find Sylvia's father become impatient, and they say, well, we just want to lynch anybody now, so they lynch Ephraim. And it's during these scenes that we learn that Sylvia was, uh, and and this is quite complicated too, the mixed-race daughter of the dead landlord's brother and that this landlord has been paying for her education this whole time. This is kind of the shocking revelation in the last act of the film. So that's an incomplete summary of what happens in the film. This final sequence that that Will just described, which I think lasts, I mean, it is probably a third of the film. I mean, it, it is really astonishingly good filmmaking, and it feels very different from the rest of the film because the opening scene and kind of the middle of Within Our Gates are, you know, often just kind of people sitting in rooms and talking, and then, you know, there are a few kind of dramatic events. Sylvia gets her purse stolen when she goes to Boston. You know, there's the poker game and the violence that ensues from that but the things depicted in the final you know 20 or 30 minutes are very difficult to watch even rendered in this kind of silent format and the heroism of Oscar Michaud for putting these things on on screen I think really can't be uh, understated the fact that this film was made in 1920 um, and that he had to use kind of borrowed costumes and props, things like that in order to get it made but made it nonetheless is uh, is pretty incredible and um, you know, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know about uh, him or, or this film before you mentioned it. I, I guess part of that is owed to uh, it not having been discovered, I guess, until the 1990s in, in uh, the form that we watched it. 
it definitely seems like a film that deserves to be better known and and uh, he seems like someone who also should be much better known as a as an artist i first became aware of michaud through an essay that jay hoberman wrote in 1980 called bad movies it was an essay that was spurred by this frenzy of activity at the time these these this series of books that were written by harry and michael medved called the golden turkey awards the 50 worst films of all time you know kind of jokey the darwin awards of cinema yeah exactly and it was the medveds who sort of discovered and popularized ed wood they called him the worst filmmaker of all time and they traveled around the country showing his movies and making snide commentary about them Hoberman, in his essay, attended one of these screenings, and he sort of found the poetry in Ed Wood. But he also, in the second half of the essay, offered Oscar Michaud as the sort of filmmaker that books like this and screenings like this are not prepared to deal with. And, you know, it's an interesting essay because it's a time capsule. At the time, only one of Michaud's silent films was discovered. Now there are three of them. The only one that Hoberman had access to was called Body and Soul, which starred Paul Robeson as a corrupt black preacher, uh, one of many in Michaud's films. And most of what had survived were Michaud's sound films. And sound films were more expensive and much more logistically difficult to make. So those films, you know, there's no continuity in them. Sometimes you can even hear Michaud directing his actors from off screen. And they're a little less ambitious than the silent films were. The poetry that Hoberman found in them was in their sort of badness. The fact that they were these sort of bizarro world versions of Hollywood movies. I, I like Hoberman's essay a lot, but it's so great and miraculous that a couple more of Michaud's silent films have been discovered to give a more complete picture of him. In recent years, there has been a sort of effort to reclaim Michaud as kind of the Jackie Robinson of film. But one of the things I think that makes him interesting is that he is such a, such a spiky and, and difficult director. Throughout his films, he's he's very obsessed with, for example, the arbitrary border between black and white. He's preoccupied with mixed race relationships. There are many of his films where the black character is in love with a white woman. Uh, and in the closing moments, you find out the white woman is actually mixed race and so that they can get together at the end. You know, Michelle was somebody who worked so hard to transcend these racial borders in his life. And it's hard to not kind of psychoanalyze him a little bit when you see him also trying to transcend them so much in his art as well. Uh, sorry, that was a bit long and rambling. I hope that made sense. I think so. While we're on this topic, I want to just talk a little bit more about some of the other race movies. I would I would wager that maybe something like 50 of the 500 that were made survive. Uh, I don't have an exact figure. Over time, a lot of them have become valuable historic documents because with the coming of sound, filmmakers, including Michaud, needed cheap ways to pad the running time, and so they would often film nightclub performances. And so a lot of these films are records of journeymen black vaudevillians who there is no other record of. Of the other surviving race movies, there are a lot of interesting things to discover that I encourage people to check out. For instance, there was this mixed race singer named Herb Jeffries who starred in a series of three all-black westerns where he played a singing cowboy. One of them was called Two Gun Man from Harlem, and then there was The Bronze Buckaroo and Harlem Rides Again. 
And these movies have these supporting casts that were like who's who of black Hollywood character actors like Mantan Moreland or Stymie from The Little Rascals. And it feels a little bit like this bizarro world where the extras take over the means of production, you know? There's another filmmaker named Spencer Williams who specialized in these sort of sin and salvation melodramas about people who were uh, tempted by gambling or, or tempted by the city life and were led astray. And those movies would show in church basements basically forever. And the last thing I'll say about race movies is how sort of systematically they were excluded from film history basically until the 90s. It's interesting to consider that when Hollywood, when MGM released what it called the first all-black cast musical, which was a movie called Hallelujah from 1929, it starred William Fountaine, who was an actor who had starred in four Oscar Micheaux movies. According to the MGM press release, it said that King Vidor, the director of the film, discovered William Fontaine off the street. Or there's the rather tragic case of Noble Johnson, who was the first black actor to become anything like a star. After starring in a number of these race movies, he eventually took out a contract with Universal. And probably the most famous Universal film you can see him in is King Kong. And you'll see that he's the native chief in it. These movies were very popular and influential in small circles, but it took 50 or 60 years for them to make any sort of echo outside of those circles. And it seemed like there was an entire Hollywood infrastructure that was designed to keep movies like this out of history. I want to return to what we were saying about those uh, glossy Life magazine things that you see in Shoppers Drug Mart all the time. The only one of those that I've bought was about Bruce Lee. And uh, I know Bruce Lee has come up a few times on the podcast recently. In fact, I think I own two separate like Shoppers Drug Mart glossy Bruce Lee magazines. And looking back, I'm not quite sure why I bought them. And I think the reason I bought them was because... It's like they are the the official history of something. And Mm -hmm. somebody like Bruce Lee or any of those names that we mentioned, John Wayne or JFK, there's so much contradictory evidence for every good story you've heard about them, every supposed legacy. Sometimes, you know, reading reading that glossy Bruce Lee thing, it's 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 fun to hear hear the stories as like biblical myths, you know? Yeah, like this is the this is the official sanctioned lore. Yeah, yeah. Like in the case of Bruce Lee, there's this famous story here all the time that when he was in Seattle, he had a kung fu school where he was teaching white students. And the other Kung Fu masters in Seattle, Chinatown, were very upset about this. They, they summoned him to a tournament, to a fight. And if he won the fight, he would be able to continue teaching. And if he lost the fight, he would have to leave. And of course, Bruce Lee won the fight, but he wasn't happy after. He had his head in his hands and he says, the fight took too long. And that was how he created his own style, Jeet Kune Do. Now, would you believe that when I was, you know, 12 years old, I took that story at face value? <laughs> and, you know, there, there's part of me that it's it's like the it's like the uh, the apple falling on Isaac Newton's head of, of like Kung Fu action star yeah. lore. And, you know, I, I still want to believe that it's true and that it's true in exactly that way. <laughs> well, it's been a while since um, 
since I remember reading about this history, but I'm pretty sure the origins of the time life, you know, style and and the shtick, which is basically rendering for you in the most kind of rose tinted way, a particular figure's backstory, the particular history or details of, of historical events or whatever. And also, you know, always coming with this kind of weightiness about like, this is part of our story, our, this is our official story. Um, this is why JFK still matters yeah. or what, you know, whatever the thing is. When Time Magazine was pioneered, I think pretty much the explicit business model was that the kind of people attending patrician garden parties and stuff, um, you know, they kind of needed something to talk about. It made sense to create a publication that would give people just enough knowledge to kind of talk about current events in a way that sounded sort of informed, but also you know, was kind of sufficiently within the bounds of orthodoxy that it wasn't going to kind of upset. It wasn't going to create any disruptions at kind of bourgeois cocktail parties or or whatever else. And thus the kind of time life style was born. And yet it seems like those magazines are exclusively targeted to boomers now. Like it's all boomer icons that they're that they're focused on. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but it doesn't seem like like a style that is being carried on to the next generation, is it? Or are we going to see like a, a glossy life magazine about Chrissy Teigen in 30 years? I'm just imagining, you know, like left wing millennials in 30 or 40 years just being absolute cranks. And, uh, you know, we have our own version of this, except it's glossy covers about like obscure Internet controversies <laughs> that occupied too much of our like, you know, so it'll be like it'll be like the milkshake duck tweet at 50. <laughs> now watch this drive. <laughs> I'm a 